The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. What are we supposed to do with this world? How are we supposed to interact with it, to think about it and then to approach it? Whether you're a Christian or not, how are you to handle such a vast array of religious diversity? My hope is that this morning, as we look at Acts chapter 17 and see Paul involved in a similar setting of religious pluralism, that is, a a place in which there is a plurality of religious perspective, none of which are really dominant, We see him involved in a a realm of religious plurality. And looking at that, we'll learn something ourselves about how we are to think about and then respond to the world that we live in. When I say respond, I don't necessarily mean like technique, like what particular things we should do. I mean what kind of perspective we should have and then some broad type action that will follow out of that. Acts 17 has some things to teach us along those lines this morning. I'm going to read from verse 16 through the end of the chapter. I'm going to pause in the middle to explain a couple of details. I'm going to read the rest of Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Paul has come to Athens, you'll recall, from Macedonia, which is to the north in northern Greece. He's come there by himself, and the text in verse 16 seems to indicate that his intention is to wait until his friends show up before he engages in evangelizing the city. So he's kind of hanging out in Athens for a little while. Now, Athens is one of the premier cities of the ancient world. You've heard of Athens. And while its sun was setting a little bit by this point, It was still a global city with a tremendous reputation, well-known for architecture and art and, of course, philosophy, being the hometown of Socrates and Plato and the adopted city of Aristotle, again, people that you've heard of. Athens had a well-deserved reputation for being a place that thinks, that is into the world of ideas, and it had a wide reputation for being very religious. Among their contemporaries, Athenians were known as some of the most religious people on the face of the earth because much of that art and architecture and philosophy circled around the pantheon of the gods. If you were to walk through Athens at this time, even today, temples and altars and shrines and statutes and celebratory pillars covered the place, filled the marketplace. Everywhere you would go, you would see all kinds of diverse places of worship and sacrifice and remembrance. 
Some to gods that you perhaps have heard of, like Zeus, but a whole bunch of other things. A massive variety of gods. Athens, this Athens, was the ultimate expression of religious pluralism. Paul looked around, and he saw all that and was moved by it. Verse 16, he was provoked in his spirit. Not sorrowed, upset. The only other place that word is used in the New Testament is in the love chapter of 1 Corinthians about being irritated or angered. He's irritated. He doesn't become irritable. He's not, he doesn't become angry outwardly with people, but there's something in him that's bothered. You can look in the Old Testament and see some Greek translations of the Old Testament and see the word there about being roused to jealousy over the denigration of God's name. Stirred to a, a righteous indignation about something going on. He's provoked. And he sees the city full of idolatry. And so he does something. He begins to daily reason with the Jews in the synagogue and whoever he finds in the marketplace. He undertakes the mission that he was going to wait for his friendship, but he can't. He can't wait. He steps into it, dialoguing with whoever he finds. And in the marketplace, he encounters some of the philosophers, which would have been natural. They would have had little clumps of... of kind of like the designated place that these folks talk about this philosophy and these folks talk about these couple things would have been the way it was in this massive marketplace. And he finds the Epicureans and the Stoics there. It's not really important this morning for us to know all that those folks believed, but they're listed here so that we could hear a little bit of Paul's argument through their ears. For the sake of this morning, what I'm going to say is that in the speech that follows... Paul, in several places, says things that are somewhat in line with Epicurean and Stoic thinking. The two poets that he quotes are their poets. And what he's doing is he's grabbing things that they believe and that they already teach and showing you have part of the picture, but you misunderstand some of this. And he takes it a little ways and then goes on beyond it. It's kind of part of his technique of how he's engaging with these folks. And he does that. They're in the marketplace. And while they don't think much of him, they call him a babbler, which is kind of an insulting term, they're at least intrigued enough to invite him to come to talk to the Areopagus, which would have been kind of like a, a philosophy council. Come and lay out your ideas before the whole group of us. And so he does. Picking up in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. 
as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again on this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Paul opens his speech or his sermon with the observation that will be his connect point with the audience, something that they readily acknowledge and something that's been the thing that's provoked him. You guys are very religious. It's not flattery. It's just, it's obvious. I walk around and I see all kinds of stuff. And you're so religious, you're so meticulous in your worship that you even have this altar to an unknown God. That's his in. Now, depending on who you read, there are a number of different stories about this altar. Some actually claim that there is a, a full-fledged backstory, that this actually was an event in Athens where they didn't know who this God was, so they built an altar to it. Others, I think, a little more likely claim that what happened was as the altar fell apart over time, they couldn't read who it was to, and so when it was restored, there was a plaque put on it to an unknown God. That, that kind of story happens in many other cities. It's obvious in other cities where they just repair something and say, we don't want to offend you. We don't know who you are. So we're just going to say to an unknown God. E- either way, there is a statue there or an altar to an unknown God, and Paul says, that which you don't know, I'm going to fill you in on. He is not exactly saying, the God that you don't know, I'm going to introduce you to. It's more generic. He's talking about the unknown. You guys are philosophers. You're a philosophical city. You pride yourself on knowledge, and there's some stuff you don't know. You acknowledge it. I'm going to fill in the blank. And he begins to explain. He begins to elaborate. And as we look at this speech that he says, there are a few things that are of note, that are interesting to note here. First of all, there's not a Bible quote in it. He doesn't quote the Bible anywhere in this speech. What good would it do to say Moses wrote when they don't know who Moses is? It doesn't connect with them at all. When you quote an authority, you're quoting somebody that other people respect. They don't know who he is. He doesn't quote him. When he does quote people, it's their poets, people that they know. But the Bible is the word of truth. It's the light that opens blind eyes, so we can't leave the Bible behind. And if you look a little more closely at this speech, the Bible's everywhere in it. The God who made the heaven and earth and everything in it, who made from one man every nation of mankind, that's the Genesis creation account. Even going so far as to indicate everything out here, all people out here came from one man. That's Adam. He doesn't name him, but he's fleshing out that story just a little bit. He believes the Genesis creation account. You combine it with the words of verse 25 about him giving life and breath. It's a pretty close quote of Isaiah 42, verse 5. He alludes to that there. He's got the Bible on his mind. 
The God who made everything, who doesn't live in temples made by human hands and doesn't need anything from us. That sounds like Solomon's prayer when he dedicated the temple. Could have been a quote. Other things refer to Psalm 96 and Psalm 98. The whole speech itself is a tracing of redemptive history, creation, fall and separation and patience, a coming time of calling people to repent and a future judgment. The whole thing is not at all biblical, but it is thoroughly biblical. He's engaging them then with their poets. Right after he talks about the Bible message, he talks about their poets. You guys know some of this. That we're in some way like God. He's the one who gives us our being. So how foolish it would be to think that God is a rock or a mineral. Now, lest we think these philosophers are fools, they get that. They understand that God's not made out of stone. The thing he's poking them with is the second half of verse 29 or anything else that comes from the art and imagination of man. The idols in the city and everything else that comes from the art and imagination of man is off base. He's turning something on them. He's pointing out that you guys yourselves know that we are descended in some way from God. He made us. He created us. He sustained us. You acknowledge that. And what do we do? We turn it around and we begin to say, what can I make that looks like God? We're back to verse 25. What kind of service should I give to God? What kind of place should I make for God to live? He made us. He made the place for us to live. He gives to us, not the other way around. The whole thing's absurd. It's like talking about birthing your own parents. But it's rampant in this city. It's not going to last forever, though. Because while God has been patient, He calls us to turn away from such human folly, and He's going to judge it. How do we know? But he's given us an ultimate proof. This is not something that Paul prayed about and came to the conclusion was true. It's not something that he reasoned to from a philosophy book. It's a fact of history. A dead man came back from the grave. Jesus was raised. And at that point, that's a conversation stopper. Most of the people mock him. Some say, we'll hear you again on this. Maybe it's from politeness. Maybe it's out of curiosity. A few believe. That's the passage. Paul arrives in religiously diverse Athens, sees it, begins to engage with the people, ends up in the Areopagus where he gives this speech. What are we to learn from that? There are three things here, I think, that we can learn. A couple of things that are kind of elemental truths that he expresses in his speech. But the whole point of that is that it should move us to a particular action. He's going to make three observations along the line of moving us towards the action of give proper honor to the one true God. That's what we're moving towards this morning. The main point from this morning, give proper honor to the one true God. Three observations towards that point. First one from his speech. 
There is one God rightly deserving of worship. Only one. One great God in whom we were created, to whom we are accountable, by whom we will be judged. Only one. He is not defined by us, is not created by us, not selected by us. He is the single sovereign who is transcendent over all of the creation. As creator over creature. He's lifted up above us. He existed in perfect peace before there was anything. He doesn't need anything from us. He's not enhanced by anything we do. He doesn't need our shelter, doesn't need our service, doesn't even need our worship. He is perfectly at peace in his solitude, transcendent above us. But he did not choose to remain solitary. He made people and sustains us day by day and fixes, he says, fixes there every place that we live and every time that we live in for a purpose. End of 26 into 27. He has made us and sustained us and fixed where and when we are so that we would seek Him and find Him. And having found Him, live with Him in joy and in worship. That's what God's up to. Though He's not far off, He started off far off and is drawn near and is right here around us so that we would seek Him and find Him. The image he uses there in 27 is of a person groping around in the dark trying to find something that they can't quite see. Think of like looking for your glasses on a nightstand in the dark. What Paul's saying is that God made it so that there is a nightstand and so that it's right next to your bed and so that you need glasses and remember that you need glasses and remember that you put them there and have some idea what they would feel like if your hand came to rest on them. He's not trying to hide. He's drawn near, right by your bed. That's what Paul's getting at. He made you and made this world that you would recognize your need for Him, thirst for the splendor that is Him, tire of the emptiness of the world that it is without Him, and would seek Him. He's right there. A large part of you knows this because his fingerprints are on your soul. You know the true God. You know that he's right there. You grope for him. A part of you knows that and a part of you messes the whole thing up. You grope, but don't find him. You seek and miss him. You fumble around in the nightstand for a little while and say, ah, forget it, and you walk around squinting. The fundamental problem here, he has drawn near, but something in us turns the tables. Part of it's simple air we can't understand, we miss Part of it will. We turn away and instead turn to fashion all kinds of gods in our own image. We make all sorts of things that fit our perception of reality, that match our ideas for rules and service. 
Notice this contrast throughout this. We try to make places for God to live. We try to fashion service for Him. We try to make what He looks like define His, His reality. It's idolatry in us. And it's in all of us. It's evil. And it's foolish. It's, it's foolish because of what it is that we turn away from and the smallness of what we turn to. We come up with things of our own imagination. Now, religious people the world over would stop me right here and say, what are you talking about? I don't turn away from God. In my religion, I seek God. I worship Him. I do things that are very difficult to do in service to Him. I'm after God. And Paul says, the authority of God, no, you don't. There is a truth in your heart that you know, but as he would say in Romans 1, we all suppress the truth and instead exchange the truth of God for a lie and make up a whole bunch of other stuff to worship. There's something in you that knows the truth about this one God worthy of worship and you hold it off and reject it out of hand because you don't want to follow it. You want proof of that? Look at their reaction when he talks about the resurrection. No way. Based on what? Based on the fact that I don't think that's reasonable. Which is based on what? Me. And what I determine is reasonable. Paul could say, thank you for proving my case. You didn't look at any evidence. You just rejected it. Doesn't match what you want. There's one God worthy of of worship. And we turn away from Him and invent all kinds of other stuff to follow after. Religious pluralism is really religious uniformity. Look at all the similarities between every religion that the world has dreamed up. It's all the same. That might be a remarkable statement. Think about it. It's all the same. It's vast diversity boils down to tremendous uniformity. We define what God looks like. We define what it takes to serve Him, and we define where He lives, what He approves of, who He blesses. And all that stuff looks really similar. This is the way of the world. God has been patient with that, but He will not be patient forever, which brings us to the second point. The one true God will judge the world in righteousness. There is a God. He made everything. He sustains everything. He expects and hopes for everything to come to Him and submit to Him. But He will judge one day everything that does not. He will judge the world in righteousness. Verse 31, He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world. This God is not vindictive. He is not eager for wrath. He has been patient all this time overlooking this fumbling in the dark, overlooking the ignorance in it, overlooking the willful rejection. He's been patient over time. Remarkably patient. And even now again, notice how merciful he is in warning people. He says, watch out, the day of judgment is coming. If he wanted to get people, he wouldn't say anything about it. And he'd get everybody. He's not out to get people. He's not vindictive or wrathful. Not eager for that. 
But he is clear there is a day coming, and it will be a day of perfect and omniscient justice. No sin will be overlooked. No infraction, no little white lie, no covered-up scandal, nothing will be missed by this God. And he cannot be bribed, biased, coached, coaxed, coerced into taking some opinion that is more favorable to us. He's perfect in his justice. He makes no mistakes. He's right into the heart. One may say, I've never murdered anybody. And he'll look in and see anger and wrath in the heart, sin, and judge it. One may say, I've never committed sexual morality with anybody. And he will look in and see lust in the heart, sin, and judge it. He'll look in. One may say, I've never actually understood any of this. I've tried to worship you as best I could. And he will look in and see the suppression of the truth that is uniform. Call it what it is, suppression and denial of the truth. And he will judge it perfectly. Judge in righteousness and none will stand. That's what he means by saying there is a day coming in which he will judge the world in righteousness. How can we be sure of that? Because he's given firm proof. He's raised the judge from the dead. And right there at that point, the whole conversation takes a turn. Up to this point... Philosophers sitting around talking about ideas might say, well, you say that and I say this, and you counter with this and I have this idea counter-argument. Back and forth, theories and ideas. Paul's calling, to, calling their hearts to witness. You know something in your hearts about this God. But they could argue with that. No, I don't. Yes, you do. No, I don't. And now he's moved it over into history. A man rose from the dead to prove all this. Not just any man. We know that Jesus raised people from the dead. It's not the same. Those people clearly were humans, rose from the dead, died again. Jesus was a man who said he actually existed in a particular time, in a particular country, a particular place, and he said, I'm not merely a man. I am a man, but I'm more than that. I am the I am, the eternally existing God who had no beginning That's who I am, the one true God, me. And I've come to earth and taken on this body that you see. And I'm the only way that you can be rejoined to this one God who made you and is near to you that you might seek Him. You have to seek Him in me only. And then he predicted, but I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be crucified on a cross. And three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead to fulfill thousand-year-old prophecy. He said all of that in time and in space, and then it happened. Fact. 500 people saw him alive again in the very same city where he was killed. At the very same time that people were beginning to talk about this message. 500 eyewitnesses. Some of them wrote it down. We collected those books and called them the Bible. It's a fact. And if it is true, then every statue and every altar and every pillar in this city is idolatry. Every creation of your mind, every imagination and every heart thought is idolatrous. 
It is not multiple roads towards the same God. It's multiple roads towards a different God because this is the only way to this God, Jesus. If you reject him, you reject God. Based on a fact of history. Rejected? Sure. By most people there. Not true. Based on what? Because I said so. Based on what is what I asked. Because I said so is not a good enough answer. We have to face this. It's a fact. It is entirely common for human beings to say, let's talk about something else. You can do that. Most people do. As I said, it's entirely common. But there is a day coming in which he will judge in perfect righteousness. And that won't fly then. Again, I don't say that to be vindictive or, or eager for your loss. God doesn't say it to be vindictive or eager for your loss. He's warning you now so that you can turn away from that path and turn to him. There is a judge. He has been raised from the dead, validating everything that he claimed. And then he ascended into heaven where he sits now waiting for the court to be called into session. There's a day at which the one true God will judge everything through his servant Jesus. What are we to do with that? Takes us to the final point. Third point. Be clear about all of this and be appropriately provoked. Get this clear. Be very, very clear. There is one God worthy of worship, and he will judge every single person in the world by his son Jesus. Be very clear about that and be appropriately provoked to respond to it. First of all, you have to feel the weight of verse 30. He commands all people everywhere to repent. He created all people everywhere from one man. He will judge all people everywhere through one man, and he commands all people everywhere repent and turn to and trust that one man or face his wrath. There's a day of judgment coming. It is rushing towards you. It's coming at you. How will you stand when you get there? What will you do with Jesus? What will Jesus do with you? Now's the time to address that, not then. Be very clear. Repent. Turn from this habit of suppressing the truth of this one true God. Turn from the habit of setting up all kinds of other gods and turn to Him. Be clear. Be provoked. Be, in the sense, move towards action. But there's another way to think about being provoked. That applies to Christians. This is really what Paul's provoking was. Be bothered. Christians, be bothered. Be really clear about this and be bothered. Be stirred, 
discontented. This is where Paul is in verse 16. Before your eyes, right before your eyes, there is something marvelous. This one true God worthy of worship, he's marvelous. Full of splendor and beauty and power and grace. More loving than you can imagine, he's marvelous. And this marvel that is placed in the world is regularly denigrated, ignored, minimalized, marginalized, trivialized, set aside and rejected in this religious plurality that we call the world. That should bother you. We are taught on good authority to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, revered, honored be your name on earth as it is in heaven. You're the maker of heaven and earth. You're the Lord of heaven and earth. Your name should be revered in heaven and on earth. We are to pray that. Do we actually mean it? God, may your name be hallowed here. Or just words coming out of our mouths. We are taught, told to pray that, which I think implies we're supposed to want it. We should look around at the world, though, and see that that does not happen. The world in its folly and blindness has suppressed the truth and has exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling animals and beasts and man. Things made out of plastic and gold, fashioned from our own imaginations, filled up our lives with creative debasement and imaginative dimness. We create idol upon idol upon idol. Oh, the breadth and the depth of the idolatry of this world. Do you see that and are you provoked by it? It's amazing. It's breathtaking. And what's more breathtaking is that God in patience still holds back his hand. He still holds back. That is amazing. Be provoked. But not to anger. Anger of man rarely accomplishes anything good. Christians, I might step on some toes here, appropriately. We all too often, to our shame, are angry. We, we listen to, we see the world and what it's become. We see the changes, the pluralism that sweeps over our shores, that's changed the land that many of us were born in and grew up in. And all too often we are angry about that. Not, I would suggest, provoked to jealousy over the loss of the glory of God. I think more often provoked to anger over the loss of status of the church and of Christians. I think it was Michael Moore. I didn't check this. I think it was Michael Moore that wrote a book, Dude, Who Stole My Country? And many Christians, I think, want to scream back at him, Dude, you did. Or if that wouldn't be polite, we cheer when Rush Limbaugh does. (laughs) 
to our shame. To our shame. Ask any non-Christian you meet on the street, what do you think of Christians? I'll bet you a dollar that one of the things that comes up is they're really angry. They're really pushy. Particularly around times that some court cases arise. Boy, remember how much we got upset about the, the Ten Commandments on the courthouse wall down in somewhere in the south? Personal opinion here. I have no idea why we got upset about that. The Ten Commandments aren't followed anywhere in that town. Why should they be on the courthouse wall? Don't be provoked to anger to fight superficial battles. But be provoked, not to anger, and not to fear either. Anger's first cousin is fear. Don't be provoked to fear, thinking they're never going to listen to me. We fall back in the face of the pluralism of, of this day and get intimidated by it. It's really confusing and there's sophisticated arguments and I don't know all the ins and outs of this and who can keep everything straight because my goodness, there's such a variety. I better just be quiet. I don't want to be embarrassed or mocked even. Don't be provoked to anger or to fear. But I think though if we're honest, most of the time we don't get angry and we don't get afraid we go get a pizza and a movie and go back to our house and mind our own business. Which is exactly the mindset of religious pluralism and totally foreign to apostolic thinking. Paul walked the city of Athens and he had good reason to get a pizza and go back home and wait for his friends to arrive, but he could not. Why couldn't he? This, I think, is perhaps the most important thing for us as a church to think about. The connection between verse 16 and verse 17. Provoked in his spirit when he saw the idolatry, so he began to preach. Not climbing up on a stump to denounce them, but he engaged in different settings, reasoning with them. And then we see what happened afterwards. I cannot keep quiet. Something is wrong here. And the answer is not to get angry and shout it down. The answer is to bring the gospel onto the table and talk about it. It's Paul's thinking. Where does it come from? We have, we have to get this clear. Where did Paul's evangelistic drive, from where did it arise? This right here we see, not from command or from obligation. It arose from a vision of this marvel that was being ignored. That, I cannot have that. I can't tolerate that. Hallowed be your name. It's not being hallowed. I'm going to do whatever I can about that. I can't convert people. I can't make any of this happen. But I know what I can do. I can walk out there and engage people with the gospel and leave the results to you, God. He was provoked to rise up and clearly and patiently, in the words of Psalm 96, declare His glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. 
be feared above all gods for all the gods of the people that I see all around worthless idols for the Lord made the heavens ascribe to the Lord O nations ascribe to the Lord the glory do his name we must be similarly provoked irritated bothered look around at the world religious pluralism around us you should be provoked by that see that there is one God worthy of worship he will judge everything one day Get that clear and be provoked to action. Specifically, bring the gospel into play. Give proper honor to the one true God. If you're not a Christian this morning, that means trust Him and become a worshiper of His. And if you are a Christian this morning, that means Work in a hundred different ways. Give yourself to seeing His name hallowed on earth as it is in heaven. Let me pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, this is our prayer this morning. Would you move us to engage with that? There are a lot of ways to do that, Lord, and I don't know even how to do it all myself, let alone for everybody else here, but would you work that in individual hearts, convict us, direct us, prod us, encourage us, mobilize us. Father, we want to see the nations declare your glory for your glory's sake and for their eternal good. You've drawn near that you might be found. Would you open their eyes, shine light through the gospel off the lips of your people and use us in that process, I pray. Pray this in the name of the great Savior and Judge, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.